you have your copy of the Word of God, I want to invite you to open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 19, and we'll begin in verse 17 this morning. And as Mr. Al stated earlier, the idea or the theme of the service today is the crucifixion of Christ, and that in fact is the title of the the sermon, The Crucifixion of Christ. But before we read God's Word, I, I want us to pause and pray. Let us let us pray. Father, as we come to this portion of the service, I pray against all hindrances that would that would enter our minds, that would bother us from hearing your word. I pray, God, that you would help us to put all things aside for just the next few minutes and help us, Lord, to focus upon hearing from you. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would speak into our lives. We pray that you would grip our hearts and our minds with this tremendous truth of your word. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that your crucifixion on the cross would sink in deep so that we might be transformed by the truth of your word. And so, Lord, I pray that you would guard my mouth from error. Guard our hearts and our minds from error. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth mouth, and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> As we approach this text, I, I think John's purpose in recording this account of the crucifixion it's for us to see that, that we may have an eyewitness account and that we may see and believe that Jesus is a long-awaited Passover lamb that he has been speaking about leading up to this particular point in the text today. He wants us to see that God's eternal rescue plan is accomplished by Jesus' death on the cross. And so the text begins in verse 17, and if you've found your place, say amen, and follow along as I read. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is in Hebrew or Aramaic called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. And Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus, the Nazarene, King, the King of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but that he said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus, 
then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. He said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. After this, Jesus, knowing that all Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Then the Jews, because it was a day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, they asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, They shall look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a 100 pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. The first scene that we see, beginning in verse 17, is the scene of the crucified king. In verses 17 through 22, we see the crucified king. In fact, John just kind of begins by stating in verse 17, or in verse 18 rather, they crucified him there. Notice that John doesn't provide any of the details of Jesus' scourging from the text before in chapter 19. He doesn't speak about the agony of the cross, though we learn from the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that the cross certainly was full of agony. He doesn't even speak about the detail of Simon helping him carry the cross. Instead, in verse 17, he just says, he went out bearing his own cross. And what we need to see is even from the beginning of what John is recording for this crucifixion account, John has an intent and a purpose that we would recognize and see. He wants us to see that God's eternal rescue plan is accomplished through Jesus' crucifixion. And he wants us to see that Jesus is the long-awaited Passover lamb. And so John is showing us, by Jesus coming out, carrying his own cross, that Jesus is, in fact, in control of his destiny. In one sense, he was the only one who could truly carry the weight of the cross. So John's account doesn't contradict what we read in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Instead, 
John just gives us a simple, straightforward account of Jesus' crucifixion. He gives us a, a different perspective than the synoptic accounts. He wants his readers, he wants us to see the, the crimson thread that's running through his gospel. He wants us to see that this is God's eternal rescue plan. Christ's crucifixion on the cross. It's by the crucifixion of Christ that God would redeem and he would free men from bondage to sin. It's through the crucifixion that God would save the souls of generations to come. It's through the crucifixion that God would reverse the fall that happened in the garden and restore man into right relationship with him. And so John gives us clues. He gives us clues calling our mind's eye back to points along the journey from the incarnation to the crucifixion. He, he wants us to see how these clues point us forward to the culmination of Christ's resurrection and the gift of life that comes because Christ didn't remain in the grave, but he rose from the grave. And so he wants us to see that he gives us an eyewitness account So that by believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, we may have life in his name, eternal life. That's John 20, 31. But these things I've written to you so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the goal that John is writing toward. And so first we see that he was numbered among the transgressors. The crucified king is numbered among the transgressors. In verse 18, he was put there between two criminals, one on either side. John points this out so that we see this is a fulfillment of Scripture in Isaiah chapter uh, 53, verse 12. He says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Listen, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus, the king, the crucified king, was numbered among transgressors that we might have eternal life. In fact, secondly, we see that God's true king was displayed for all to see. It wasn't an accident that he was placed along the road right outside of the gate in a very prominent place where people were passing by. In verses 19 and 20, we see that he was, in fact, displayed for all to see. Jesus has already alluded to this in John 17:1 in the high priestly prayer where he says, Father, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And he is glorified. As the true king, he's glorified on the cross as the one and only king who could bear the cross. And so Jesus reigns gloriously as the one who stretches himself out on the cross. One author says of him, he turns the obscene instrument of torture into a throne of glory and he reigns from a tree. This is the picture of our savior, of our king The public execution of Jesus just outside the city was intentional. Everyone who passed by could see 
and they could read that statement that was affixed to the cross in verse 19. Jesus, the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Jesus wasn't just the King of the Jews, though. Jesus was also King of all nations. That is, in the cross, in the crucifixion, Christ exercised universal dominion through his death. He exercised kingship for all nations. And as the true king, he is the one who has given victory over the enemy. He delivered people from bondage. He delivered us from oppression. Jesus has set us free in the cross. That's what the crucifixion is about, and that's what John wants us to see. He wants us to see that as Jesus embraced the cross and his destiny as the king of creation, he wants us to see that Christ did it so so that he would redeem the world from sin and from the grip of Satan. It means for you and for me and in our lives that Christ redeemed us from, from sin and from the grip of Satan. At the cross, Jesus the King defeated the powers of hell and death and sin. And he reversed what happened in the garden in the fall. He reversed the curse of sin so that when we come to him, we might be freed from the bondage that comes through sin in our lives. When he did this, Christ paid the sin debt that we all owe. He transferred the righteousness that he has to all who believe upon him. And in doing so, he gives us privilege as his people to come into the presence of the Father. This is all because of the crucifixion of Christ. He died on the cross that we might believe. One writer compared Christ's triumph on the cross to a city that was under siege. The enemy had surrounded the city. No one could come in or go out. No one could bring supplies in. No one could leave. The supplies were running low in the city, and the citizens were fearful. But in the dark of the night, one spy kind of sneaks in, gets behind enemy lines, and sneaks into the city. And he rushed into the city to tell the people that another play, in another place the main enemy, uh, the main forces had been defeated and that it was just a matter of time that the enemy would surrender and they would lay down their weapons. Similarly, at times in life it may seem that our lives themselves are surrounded by the forces of evil, surrounded by disease, by injustice, by Oppression by death. But the enemy, which is what happens on the, on the cross, the enemy has actually been defeated at Calvary, at Golgotha, the place of the skull. The enemy has been defeated and things are not always as they seem to be. And it's only a matter of time until it becomes clear, more clear than ever before. The battle is really over. Christ has really won. He really is the victor. He is the one that has defeated sin and death. The sting of death, the sting of death is over. We have victory in Christ. When the king was crucified, the king won a decisive victory. Hear this out. God, our heavenly father, didn't just leave us bound in sin, 
under the law without the possibility of ever having a restored relationship with him. No, he sent the king. He sent the king to fight the battle, to win the battle. And the king won the battle by going through the crucifixion to his death. This was God's eternal plan unfolding through the fulfillment of his very word. And so in scene two, we see God's eternal plan unfolds. Beginning in verses 23 through 27, John is careful to show us this. His his whole point is it's evangelistic. He wants us to see it and to believe because of what he has seen and what he has written and recorded for us to see. John wants us to see the fulfillment of Scripture in, in all events surrounding the cross. And for that reason, not even the smallest details have been overlooked. Instead, they've been included in in God's eternal plan. First, we see it happen in verses 23 and 24. They cast lots for his clothing. In verses 23 and 24, this this points us back to Psalm 22.18. And in Psalm 22.18, we read, They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots, right? They divided the outer garment, cut it in four and divided it. And then they cast lots for the the single woven, uh, seamless woven inner gown. But secondly, God's eternal plan continues to unfold in that we see he shows us Jesus fulfills the law. In verses 25 through 27, I think this is John's point as we see it in verses 25 through 27. He's honoring his mother and he's he's entrusting her to the care of the one who really appears to be the disciple John. He's marked off as, as the one who's different than every other life that's ever lived because Jesus on the cross looks down upon his mother and and says, woman. Behold your son and tells the disciple, behold your mother. And he he entrusts her to his care. Almost in the sense that he wants to carry out the law to the to the fullest degree possible as he entrusts his mother to the care of a disciple. There are no loose ends left. There's no unfinished task dropped from his hands. Jesus fulfills all things. He's the perfect Savior. He is the one who fulfills the law. He fulfills fulfills all things. We see as part of God's eternal plan unfolding that John reveals to us that Jesus is the Passover lamb. Verses 31 through 33. One theme that we see in John's gospel is the theme of Jesus as the Passover lamb. And John's careful at this stage, at this point, to to give us two points, in fact. First, he says in verse 31 that the bodies could not remain on the cross. Verse 31, then the Jews, because it was a day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. So he, he points out that they can't remain on the cross. And in doing so, he's pointing us, highlighting this passage from Numbers 9, 12, about the Passover sacrifice. Numbers 9.12 says, They shall leave none of it until morning. Speaking of the Passover lamb. They shall leave none of it until morning. Nor break any of its bones. According to the statute for the Passover they shall 
keep it. But secondly, he points us to see that Jesus' bones weren't broken. He had already died. In verses 33 and 36, in verse 33, but coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. And look in verse 36. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. And in Exodus twelve forty six, it shall be eaten, speaking of the Passover meal, it shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. John is being careful to show us that Jesus is, in fact, the Passover lamb. And as the Passover lamb, here's the point. As the Passover lamb, Jesus is the one that delivers his people from bondage and he delivers them from sin. And the point is that Jesus himself, he delivers us from bondage and he delivers us from sin. The power of Christ on the cross being resurrected and living in your life and in my life by his Holy Spirit delivers us from sin. I want you to hear this. You don't have to live in bondage to sin. Believer, you can be free from bondage to sin. I'm not saying that you'll live a sinless, perfect life. But I'm saying that Christ has given you you the power by His Spirit to overcome addiction. He's given us the power by His Spirit to overcome sin, that we don't have to wallow in it. He's given us strength to trust in Him and not worry, not be filled with anxiety, not experience fear, not walk around in guilt because of past mistakes. Jesus has freed us from this kind of bondage. And He's done it through the cross. It is a tactic of Satan to remind us of sin in our life and to distract us and to try to consume our faith for he prowls about like a roaring lion seeking those whom he may devour. Understand that Jesus is the Passover lamb and because he is the Passover lamb, he has delivered his people from bondage. As a believer in Christ, you don't have to walk in bondage. You walk in freedom. We also see in verses 34 through 37 as part of God's eternal plan unfolding that Jesus is the fountain of life. And John highlights again from Scripture how this has been prophesied from from the beginning. We're assured in verse 35 of John's eyewitness account to Christ's crucifixion. I know John's name isn't mentioned in this gospel. He he only refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. But both tradition and, and internal evidence point us to see that John is the author of the gospel, which bears his name, the gospel of John. So hear what they did. He's given us an eyewitness account. They pierced his side in verse 34. One of the soldiers, when they saw that he was dead, just to make sure, they took the spear and they shoved it in his side and immediately it says, blood and water came out. John wants our eyes to go back to Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1. 
and in so doing, see how the prophecy has come literally to fulfillment here. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Here is the cleansing that comes from knowing Christ and coming to him and being in relationship with Christ. This is the cleansing that Christ has given to his people And so John sees this as a literal fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. When Jesus was pierced and all the people who were coming by were able to look upon him and the blood and the water flowed. Verse 37 tells us that they looked upon him whom they pierced. When this happened, this is the fountain of Forgiveness. This is the fountain of life that is flowing from Jesus' body. And in verse 37, when he says, They shall look upon him whom they pierced, he's pointing us back to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, where Zechariah prophesies and says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. The point is that they would see the crucifixion of Christ as fulfillment of Scripture and that we too should see Christ's crucifixion as fulfillment of Scripture. With Christ's death, The fountain of life has been opened and and all who come to him believing that he is the son of God will overcome the world. First John chapter five, verses five and six say this. John records, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. You see, the blood and the water which flowed from Christ's pierced body is the covenant which makes us righteous with God. It is the soul-satisfying drink of living water flowing from Christ. Because in laying down his life as the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ enacted the covenant on behalf of God's people when his blood was poured out. That which we'll celebrate in a few moments through the Lord's Supper this morning. The blood of Christ being poured out and his body being torn that we might have eternal life. And so we see in the Passover lamb, one who has atoned, he's paid for our sin. And he has made us new through the giving of his life. God's eternal plan continues to unfold in verses 28 through 30. We see that Jesus says, he makes a declaration, it is finished. What did he mean when he said it is finished? He meant his purpose was fulfilled and his mission complete. Christ came to fulfill God's plan and purpose through his life, through laying down his life. Jesus would die in the place of man suffering God's wrath so that we might enjoy God's 
favor. Do you see the transaction that was made through his death on the cross? And so he says, I'm thirsty. And they gave him sour wine. Even this detail in verse, um, in verse 30, or in verse 28 rather, when he says, I'm thirsty, and they, and they give him uh, sour wine. This is to fulfill scripture as well. Scripture, Psalm sixty-nine, twenty-one. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. This isn't to be thought of as the sour or, or, or the wine that would dull the pain or remove the edge of the pain. Instead, this would be more like a vinegary concoction. If anything, it would arouse his senses. And, and the point is that Jesus went to his death fully aware and conscious of fulfilling the Father's eternal plan. Three times in verses 28 through 30, he uses the same verb form to speak of completion, it being finished. It's the same word that he's used in John chapter 17, verse 4 in his prayer, when he said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Speaking there of what was being accomplished, speaking here of that which is final. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. And that leads us to the third scene of the text. In verses 38 through 42, we see that the lamb is dead. They laid Jesus in the tomb in verses 40 through 42. Verse 39, Nicodemus brings all of these spices and they give him a burial that's fit for a king for he is the crucified king. But this detail is significant. It's significant. Many have denied the death of Jesus over the centuries, but John's intent for us to see and give us an eyewitness account that Jesus really did die on the cross and he really was taken down and he really was put into the tomb. And these two men really did come, and they really did anoint his body. And so we find two unlikely followers of Jesus, not his original disciples of the twelve, but we find two unlikely followers of Jesus taking care to place the Passover lamb in the tomb. The two characters we see burying Jesus are Joseph of Arimathea, verse 38, and Nicodemus, the one who had come to him in the garden. And John gives us some details about these guys. He, he says they were secret disciples. They were both members of the Sanhedrin. Both were prominent men. But here's the thing I think we're seeing. They've reached a point. They've reached a crossroad, maybe we could say. They've reached a decision point. No, no more hiding for these men. It's time for them to overcome the fear associated with being followers of Christ. And notice what they do. They step forward out of the shadows and take hold of the Lamb who's already taken hold of them. It's time for them to rise up and to embrace their faith in Christ. Maybe there are some here this morning who have been secret followers of Jesus, kind of leading a double life. And you, like these two men, claim to be a follower of Christ, 
are left this morning gazing at the Passover lamb who has been hanging on a cross and has now been placed in the tomb. And today is the day that you have to say, will I unashamedly live for the Christ I profess to follow or will I deny him and reject him? Today is the day when you have to decide, is today the day that I follow him with all that I am, with everything and surrender it all to him or is today the day that I continue pulling the wool over the eyes of others? That I continue being a secret follower of Christ. John is careful to show us in this text that Jesus is the king who is numbered among transgressors for our salvation. That we might believe that he is the son of God. Jesus displayed his kingly glory on the cross so we would drink of the fountain of life. And Jesus is the fountain of life that's freely given. I want you to hear that it's a fountain of forgiveness. It's not a fountain of judgment. You don't have to fear judgment when you come to Christ. This fountain of life, it's received, it's not earned. You can't earn God's forgiveness. We can't accumulate enough merits to save our souls. There won't be any scales weighing this life in eternity. That's not how it will be. Good won't be weighed against the bad. It's either believe or reject. Follow or walk away. This morning I plead for any who are here who don't know the King Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified, that we might have eternal life, I plead for you to surrender your life to Christ. He is the Passover lamb who has delivered his people from bondage and he can deliver you from bondage today. Some see the cross as a tragedy. Certainly his disciples that day would have seen the cross as a tragedy. But John's gospel shows us the cross wasn't a tragedy, it was a triumph. He wants us to see that in the cross, Christ triumphed over sin and death. And he has given us eternal life for all who believe upon him. Do you believe in Jesus Christ this morning, that he is the son of God? How will you respond to the crucified king How has Christ's crucifixion changed your life, believer? I pray this morning that you won't deny and reject Christ, that you'll come out of hiding if you're in hiding as a believer, and that you'll stand firm upon the faith that Christ has given you in him. I want to close this in prayer and invite you to respond as the Lord leads you this morning. Perhaps there's an area of your life that you need to surrender to him as king that you haven't surrendered to him in the past. I want to give you time to do that this morning, right where you are in prayer. Or perhaps this morning you've recognized that you don't truly know Jesus Christ, the one who died on the cross, the Passover lamb, the king who was crucified so that we might have eternal life and has become our substitute. If you don't know him this morning, I want to offer you the opportunity to know him 
Right where you are, you can pray and surrender your life to Christ. You can, you can ask for forgiveness of your sin. You can repent of your sin and trust Him as Lord and Savior. If you've never done that this morning, you can do that for the first time this morning through praying a prayer of repentance and trusting Him. And if that's you this morning, if that describes you, I want to invite you after the service to come forward and to speak with me, to find one of our elders to tell your neighbor, to tell somebody next to you, because I I want to talk with you. I want to find out how God is working in your life and want to encourage you and support you. Let us pray this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that it was in your eternal plan to allow Christ, your son, to go to the cross that we might have eternal life. We thank you that you show us through your word that you have kept your word throughout the ages and that your word is true. And so, Lord, we pray that as this morning, as we reflect upon the cross of Christ, that you would strengthen our souls through the hope of the gospel. We thank you, Jesus, that you laid down your life that we might have eternal life. And we pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us in this message. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.